Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. guys well welcome back to the servants of grace podcast my name is dave and i'm the host for this show and on today's episode we're going to continue our study through the book of psalms looking today at psalm 29 and the lord of the storm would you please join me now in prayer father as we look at this great psalm today lord i i pray that you would open our eyes and our ears lord to attend to the to the seriousness of the message in this psalm that that worship is not just something that we do on sunday that it's not even just part of our lives but that it's all of our life and it's all before you and lord you desire us as you said to the woman at the well, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, I pray as we open this text now and as we consider it and unpack what it means that you would use this time to, to sharpen our, to, to refine our lives according to your word. And that our response would be one of repentance and obedience to the word of God. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given to us to open your word and pray now that you would use it in our lives. And thank you that you do, as Isaiah 55, 11 says, that your word will not return without void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Saron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bears. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is a reading of God's precious word. On the afternoon of May 20th, 2013, a violent tornado tore through Moore, Oklahoma. It's hard to imagine the destruction of a tornado that was 1.3 miles wide. It was on the ground for over 
40 minutes, it churned a 17-mile path through Oklahoma City. Within minutes, entire neighborhoods were flattened and destroyed. The amount of energy in a storm like this is staggering. Some have estimated that it, this E5 tornado was up to 600 times more powerful than the atom bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Psalm 29 describes the, the, the power of God like a raging storm. Charles Spurgeon says this, This psalm is meant to express the glory of God as heard in the pealing thunder and seen in a tornado. These verses march to the tune of a thunderbolt thunderbolts and frankly if we're honest the picture that this psalm gives us it's disturbing why would david compare the voice of god to a to a violent storm you see what we need to understand from this psalm is we do not serve a tame god a god that we can lead around on a leash a god of our own making we do not serve a puny god Rather, David says, our God is the God of glory, and he thunders in verse 3. In fact, even in the modern world, we fear a storm. That visceral fear helps us to learn the fear of God. Now, notice the context here. Immediately before this, Psalm 28.8 says, The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a saving refuge of his anointed. And in spite of this, Israel was tempted to worship other gods and to look for strength in idols that their neighbors worshipped. Psalm 29 was a wake-up call, a reminder that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one true and mighty God. This God whose voice breaks the cedars is your strength. This mighty God saves and protects the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And so, following immediately after Psalm 28, Psalm 29 taught Israel to trust in the Lord and to hope in Christ. You see, we ourselves have great need to trust and to understand the power of God today. If we have a puny God, if we have a low view of God, we will have a low and a puny faith in God. And yet, if our God is mighty, the, the door is open for us to have a mighty faith rooted in the word of God. The untamed power of God is like the tempest, and he is our strength. And this graphic description of the unchanged power of God teaches us to hope in God and to trust in Christ. This God whose voice breaks the cedars will break every enemy who lifts himself up against Jesus Christ. And through Christ, God, will bless us with his peace. Friends, this is so important for us to understand because we all face times and we face situations in which, you know what, we're tempted to be discouraged. We're tempted to, be, uh, to get downcast, as, as even the Psalms talk about. But you notice, for example, in Psalm 42, at the end of Psalm 42, it says to hope in God. That's our hope. In fact, this hope, Hebrews tells us, is an anchor to the soul. Because behind what, what the scripture is aiming to do in our lives, Titus 1-2 says, is a God who never lies. That is, that is God, our God is unchanging. His promises never change. His character never changes. 
And and he's has he is near to us. What this means is very practically, not just in theological terms, but very practically what this means is 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 that God cares for us. Is that is that God isn't disinterested in us. It might seem in the midst of you know, where we're headed as a country in America and even in Europe and, and, and around the world, it might seem that God is disinterested in us because, you know what, we're headed towards something like an economic recession, potentially. Or perhaps, you know, we just had the midterm elections here in the United States and your, your, uh, your favorite politician, you know, and, and party May, may have won or not won, and, and you base your identity and your value and your worth off of, you know, who gets into office. Or maybe there's something more going on in your life. Maybe you have a family member with a, a chronic illness, and, and it weighs on you heavily emotionally and mentally and even spiritually. And what you need in the midst of these times and in all times it's to have an anchor to, for your soul. You need to have the anchor. You need to know that you know that you know the power of God. This is not an abstract idea that we are considering here. That has no relevance, no bearing on our lives. Theology, yes, is, is, it's, 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 it is intellectual, but it's also stirring to the heart. It should lead us to worship as we will see today. And at its core, Psalm 29 is about God. David uses the personal name Yahweh translated the Lord 18 times in 11 verses. And so we're going to look at Psalm 29 under three headings. Verses 1 through 2, the call before the storm. Verses 3 through 9, the power of the storm. And verses 10 through 11, the calm after the storm. So first, the calm before the storm. And David begins with worship. In fact, David repeats the word ascribed three times to specify who, what, and why he issues this call. And since we know that a storm is coming, verses one through two are like a tornado's siren. This is the call before the storm. Psalm 29, 1 through 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord and the splendor of holiness. Now David issues this call to spiritual beings, to gods. The phrase heavenly beings is literally the sons of God. This is trans sometimes translated the sons of God. Of the mighty, but the original reference here is to pagan gods, the idols worshipped by Israel's neighbors. David calls these foreign gods to bow down to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. So what David is doing is he's putting these foreign gods into their place. In fact, we can also go back to 2 Samuel, to a few years before David was born, and foreign gods did bow before Yahweh, before the God of Israel. When the prophet Samuel was a boy, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and they placed it in the temple of their god Dagon. And when they came back in the morning, the idol had fallen down in its face before the Ark of the Lord. They propped him back up, but when they came in the next morning, the statue had fallen again. And this time his head and hands were broken off and lying on the threshing floor, 1 Samuel 5, 1-5 tells us. 
You see, the gods of the nations cannot stand before the God of Israel, Yahweh. Although David is calling these idols to worship, he's really calling Israel to worship God. The people of Israel were tempted to worship idols again and again and again. And why turn to idols when these foreign gods were forced to recognize the overwhelming power and majesty of God? And by urging these gods to worship Yahweh the Lord in, in Psalm 29, 1 through 2, David is speaking to wayward, idolatrous Israel. Now let's, let's stop here because you know what? What Israel did is again and again and again, they returned to the false gods. They committed idolatry. Why? Why did they continue to, and continue to return to idolatry? Well, idolatry is simply, is simply treasuring a, a thing and attaching a value and worth to an object or to a thing, even to a hobby, even, even finding our identity and meaning and value and worth in that thing over and above God himself. You see, we are to treasure God supremely. We are to do as the Westminster Confession of Faith, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is what is so dangerous about idolatry is because when we commit idolatry, what we're doing is we are valuing that thing over and above God himself. Now, we just came out of Christmas, and it's easy to do this during this particular season, but it's even, it's even easier to do it around when this, this, we're headed towards New Year's. And it's even easier to do it at New Year's. We can treasure our exercise plan, our Bible reading plan, or even, even the good things of our lives above God. And we must ask ourselves, what is the end of all things? Is the end of all things, is it God himself? Is it treasuring him and enjoying him forever? Or is it, you know, in the new year, losing that weight? And so you're going to do whatever it takes to lose that weight. You're going to, you're going to do whatever it takes to check off that thing in your life. How about instead this year, you make it your aim, yes, to read the Bible, to study it, to make a regular practice of church, to get some exercise, all those things are great and good in their proper perspective. But if you miss God, you miss everything. You miss the point. You miss the point of life, period. That's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3, again and again, vanity is vanity and grasping for the wind. Here's a guy who had everything, everything in all of life. And he says it's all vanity and grasping for the wind. And then towards the end of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 12, he tells us that we're supposed to fear God and keep his commandments. And this is exactly what Israel did not do. They did not treasure the Lord. They wanted the gifts of God. They wanted, they wanted his power. They wanted his presence. They wanted to be the people of the covenant, but they did not want to obey him. And David is calling wayward Israel back to the Lord. 
In fact, this background in Israel's idolatry is reinforced by the language and the form of this psalm. Psalm 29 is very similar to ancient Canaanite poems about their gods. For instance, Baal is described as riding on the clouds, and he is pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. And David uses the language and the forms of Canaanite worship to show that Yahweh is superior to these gods, turning their own poetry against them. Peter Craigie writes, The general storm image battle has been subtly transformed into a taunt-like psalm, the praise of the Lord, by virtue of being expressed in the language and the imagery associated with the Canaanite weather god Baal, taunts the weak deity of the defeated foes, namely the Canaanites. And thus the poet has deliberately utilized Canaanite-type language and imagery in order to emphasize the Lord's strength and the Lord's victory in contrast to the weakness of Baal. As William Booth led the Salvation Army in the late 19th century, he did much the same thing with the popular music of his day. One famous example is when the Salvation Army took a song that was wildly popular on the streets of, of London Champagne Charlie and turned it into one of their favorite hymns, Bless His Name, He Set Me Free. And Booth reasoned that all music belongs to God anyway. After all, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so it's right to reclaim songs for His glory. Booth said it's like taking the enemy's guns and turning them against them. Now David is speaking to Israel by addressing the foreign gods in the style of Canaanite poetry. What does he call them to do? They must announce the glory and the strength and the power of Yahweh, verse 1 says. And the word glory, it means to be heavy and by extension to be important. Glory, after all, is that asset which makes people or individuals in even objects impressive. These false gods wanted glory and worship for themselves. But God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord... That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. With this storm on the horizon, David acknowledges that God himself is impressive, important, weighty, glorious, and powerful. And the splendor of holiness in verse 2, it refers to the holiness of God, not the holiness of those idols who bow before Yahweh. Derek Kidner translates this as, Worship the Lord for the splendor of his holiness. The splendor of God in his holiness is the visual splendor of a king in his robes. And when the Lord appears in power and glory, these pagan gods can only recognize his majesty and bow down in worship. And now this, this sets the stage for God to reveal his majesty and his greatness and his power over the storm. And so David describes the overwhelming glory of God in the tempest. Now, David writes verses 3 through 9 like a meteorologist describing the track of a tornado. The picture is one of a storm sweeping in from the sea with devastating power. Psalm 29, 3 through 4 says, The storm gathers over the Mediterranean Sea. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Storms can grow to ferocious power as they feed on moisture. Hurricanes grow over the Atlantic as the sun evaporates surface water and updrafts lift the humid air into the atmosphere. And the same process occurs over the Mediterranean as weather systems move across that sea. 
In fact, the phrase many waters in verse 3 can be translated mighty waters emphasizing the power of the sea. And yet beyond the physical picture of this growing storm, though, the voice of God thundering over the waters represents the, the spiritual victory over the Canaanite gods. The region of the sea was considered by the Canaanites to be the battleground between Yom, the god of the seas and of chaos, and Balaam, the god of fertility and the thunderstorms. And yet David proclaims that Yahweh displays his glory over both them as his voice thunders in triumph. Psalm 29, 5-6 says, And then the storm makes landfall on the coast of Lebanon in the north. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Saron like a wild ox. The, the cedars of Lebanon were known throughout the ancient Near East as the most spectacular trees in the region. Solomon, after all, imported uh, cedars from Lebanon to build his palace in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And even today, the Lebanese flays has the outline of a, of a spreading cedar tree in the center. But these tall, majestic trees snap like match, matchsticks at the sound of God's mighty voice. In verse 6, Saron is the city on name for Mount Hermon. And so Lebanon and Saron refer to the two great mountains of the north, Mount Lebanon and Mount Hermon. And when God speaks, his voice shakes these majestic mountains. He's not only more powerful and more glorious than the waters of the sea, his voice shakes the hills as his lightning strikes the mountaintops. And once again, there is a spiritual victory represented here as well. The forests of Lebanon were considered sacred to the Mesopotamian gods who used the cedars to build their homes. And when God's voice breaks the, the cedars, he violates their sacred forest. It shows he has the power to snap the beams of their homes. And now the Canaanites believed that Mount Lebanon and Mount Hermon were the abodes of the gods. Yahweh speaks and these mighty mountains skip like calves. Now, the point of this is the Lord displays his glory once again over and against the idols of the Canaanites. Psalm 29, 7-9 says, Finally, the storm moves over the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer uh, give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The phrase makes the deer give birth in verse 9 needs to be translated, makes the oaks to shake. Hebrew was originally written only with consonants, as modern Hebrew is today, but the Masorites, the Jewish scholars, came up with a system of vowels around 1000 AD for the Old Testament. Their system of vowels is brilliant, and we use their Masoretic text to this day. But every so often we come across a word where many scholars agree the word should be read with different vowels, and this is the case here. If we read the beginning of verse 9 with the vowels of the Masoretic text, God's voice sends deer into premature labor. If we use different vowels, though, verse 9 reads, The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to shake and, and strips the forest bare. This translation makes more sense in context. And Kadesh here can be one of two places. There is a, the Kadesh Barnea uh, on the southern border of Israel, an oasis in the desert. 
And now Israel camped there in the Exodus, and Moses sent out spies to report on the land. There's another Kadesh uh, to the north on the Orentes River in Syria between Damascus and Aleppo. David could be referring to either place. If, if it is southern Kadesh, this storm makes landfall in Lebanon and sweeps down the length of Israel with its destructive power. What he means here, I think, is northern Kadesh because he mentions forests in verse 9. There are no forests in the far south, but there are forests in Lebanon and Syria. And David seems to be watching the storm come in off the sea to the north of Israel and devastate the, the forest uh, as it travels inland to Syria. Psalm 29.9 says, In his temple all cry glory. And when we read this psalm, we're supposed to say, wow, here is an awesome display of the power of God. God reveals his impressive, overwhelming power as the lightning splits the trees of the forest and thunder shakes the mountains. We need to understand that God is not a puny God. He is not a tame God that we can hang, our, hang up, put a leash around and, and walk him out whenever we want. Amos 1-2 says, the Lord roars from Zion. In fact, Israel needed this vision, this understanding of the power of God so that they would stop going back to idols. And today we can become so used to having a personal relationship with God and God is our friend that we forget that the Lord truly is awesome and he is majestic and he is to be worshipped as he has revealed himself in the word of God. After all, the God who saves us rules with un uncontrolled power and he has the ability to destroy he hates sin he hates evil he saves up wrath and fury for his enemies this storm devastated the foreign nations and humiliated their gods the lord will devastate those who do not know him and humiliate the things we are tempted to worship he does this especially on behalf of the children of god because he, he, Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. It's not because God is disinterested in us. Notice what the text says in Hebrews 12. He disciplines us because he loves us. You see, that's what, that's what God does. God is not disinterested. He's not a cosmic bully out there to punch you in the face and to be disinterested in you. He loves you. Christian, even, even the hard paths, the hard roads, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, speaking to the disciples, by the way, in this world, you will have tribulation. You look at 2 Corinthians 10 and 11, and you see how many times and, and the various ways that Paul suffered, and he, he went through difficult things. And, and many of us know difficult, hard paths. Jesus promised us in this life there would not be a bed of roses. We live in a, a post-fall world. And we need to prepare ourselves for those times when, when, the, the, when hard days are going to come. Fortunately, God has given us the means to weather the storm. He's given us the means of grace. He's given us his word to read, to study, to meditate on, to memorize, to apply. He's given us the church to, to sit under the preaching of God's word. 
you know, these are things that we need. You might not think, well, I don't need that. I don't need those things. I don't need to be told what to do. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need those things. And can I just say you do? You need the reading and the preaching of God's word like you need you need food and you need water and you need sleep to survive. If you don't do those things, your body will be harmed. If you don't attend to the preaching of God's word, if you just hear the word and don't do it, you're you're doing the very thing that James says you're not to do. In James 1:22, to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word by the grace of God. And this is so important, friends, because, you know, what? we are living in a time of biblical and theological illiteracy. We are living in a time when it's easier than ever to be distracted. And what we need to hear is the voice of God through the text of Scripture. And this is why God again and again and again in the Bible, he, he tells he tells idolatrous Israel to return to me. He tells them to love him first, to supremely delight in him. In fact, we're going through the Psalms. And by the way, the language of delight is all over the Psalms. And it's there for a reason because our chief delight, our chief treasure is to be none other than God himself. And how can we, how else can you know this God other than as he has revealed himself in the word of God? Now, the phrase, the voice of the Lord, it occurs seven times in these verses, repeating the sweep of a radar beam. For an Israelite who knew their Bible, this sevenfold repetition of God's voice would have reminded them of the power of God's word at creation. Six times, Genesis 1 says, and God said, once for each day of creation, God spoke the entire universe into existence. The, the power of God's voice brought order out of chaos. Genesis 1 tells us he spoke with creative power. Psalm 29 tells us that he can speak with destructive power. And the terrifying power of God's voice also recalls the covenant that God spoke at Mount Sinai. And when God came down to give the law, the people were so overwhelmed when they heard the voice of the Lord that spoke over them. Moses writes in Exodus 19, 17 through 19, And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Israel's experience of God's presence in Psalm 29 is similar to the experience at Sinai, fire, thunder, and an earthquake that shook the mountain. The experience was so overwhelming that they begged not to hear the voice of the Lord anymore. Exodus 20 18 through 19 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they, they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. No other nation had heard God speak to them like this. And then he spoke the covenant with a terrifying voice. In Psalm 29, he speaks judgment on the false gods of the nations. 
The powerful voice of, of the Lord points us to none other than the Lord Jesus, who is himself the word of God. And when Jesus came into the world, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God spoke to us powerfully through Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of its power. As the word of God, Jesus speak, spoke with power in this world. He healed the sick. He calmed the sea. He cast out demons by the command of his voice. Jesus is not like, Jesus is not a tame God that we can put a leash around and, and carry out and bring out whenever we want. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is fully God and fully man. We cannot just call on him like a pet or a genie in a bottle whenever we want. We need to remember, yes, that because of Christ, we can come boldly before his throne. But we need to never forget that the power of his word is truly fearsome. He not only creates and heals with his word, he destroys his enemies with the tornadic fury of his word. In fact, in the end, Jesus will crush his enemies with a word from his voice. The voice of Jesus Christ will humiliate Satan and his enemies. Well, the apostle John saw this in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, which says this. And then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a frame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows, but he himself. And he is clothed in a, in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, the voice of the Lord will thunder from the mouth of Jesus Christ. David closes with a calm after the storm in Psalm 29, 10 through 11, which says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And when the clouds pass and the sky is clear, God is still on the throne. The storm did not mean that God had lost control. Rather, God rules over the wind and the in all the seasons of life, the rain, the flashing light, the earth-shaking thunder, the financial downturns, the recessions, God rules over all of it. And yet God also reveals his glory in judgment. In fact, the only other place this word flood in verse 10 is used in the entire Old Testament is in the flood account in Genesis 12 times when God judged the world. David is connecting the destructive power to the storm he witnessed with the flood 
that came on the earth in the days of Noah. God sat in judgment on the wind, the rain, the storms of the Genesis flood, and he rules over every single storm. This does not mean that a particular storm in our day is a sign of God's judgment on the nations in its path, but every violent storm reminds us that a final storm of judgment is yet coming. This God is the strength of his people, verse 11. Who can compare to him? Why look for anyone beside him? And this God brings peace to his people. He will not let his, his enemies stand forever. The storm of his judgment will bring peace to all as all of his enemies are defeated. God rages like a storm and leaves his fragile people untouched. God knows how to uproot his enemies and preserve his people. Psalm 91, 7 through 8 says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And Peter says this in 2 Peter 2, 9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. His awesome power is minutely focused and exquisitely precise. We may lose everything in this life. We may lose life itself. But we will find that by God's power, we have lost nothing. Do you know this great, this untamable, this uncontrollable God? You see, he is fierce to make no mistake, but he is also good. And that is why you can trust him. He knows what he's about. Verse, 29, verse 11 of Psalm 29 says he blesses his people with peace. You know, there, there are storms, there are trials in our lives. I mentioned John 16, 11, in this world you will have tribulation, Jesus, and the upper room discourse, that, that great seminary level education that he's giving his disciples as, they, as he prepares to go and to be taken away, that hour is going to be completed soon. And he is going to be taken away where he will be scourged and beaten and mocked and ridiculed and put on trial as a, and eventually die as a sinless substitute in our place and for our sin and be buried and rise again. You know, what's interesting in that Garden of Gethsemane episode, which we see in John's gospel, Jesus tells them to watch and to pray. You know, it's interesting. Jesus himself is, he often, the Gospels tell us, he goes away and he prays. He spends time with the Father in communion with prayer. And here he tells the disciples to watch and pray, lest you be taken into temptation. Imagine if Peter had, had spent that time watching and pray in prayer. Instead of falling asleep. And we must ask the question, how often do we do the same? How often do we in our Christian life just sort of coast on by and we forget to pray? When was the last time you really spent time in heartfelt prayer with the Lord? When was the last time you spent time feasting in this word of God? You see, as we head to the new year, which is only days away, we're, you're going to make all these resolutions. Maybe you already have. Maybe you've already been thinking about those things. Those things are great. It's great to, to make a list 
I want to lose 50 pounds in the year. I want to spend more time getting involved in church. I, I want to work on my marriage. I want to work on improve things in my life. Nothing wrong with that. But the real question is that you need to consider above all those things is are you connected like, like your laptop and your computer, if you have a, a desktop computer, or, or even your phone must be connected to the wall so that it can charge? Are you vitally connected to the power source, to the power of God revealed in the word of God? Because you see, scripture has a central message and it all revolves around a central person, the Lord Jesus. So if you are not in vital union with Christ, if you're not walking with him, if you're not doing as John 15 tells us, if you're not abiding in the vine and, and, and the Lord is pruning you, he's growing you because you're in union with him, you're never going to bear any fruit. In fact, that's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's exactly what it means. Apart from vital union with Christ, all of your efforts will fall to the ground. That's, why, that's what 1 Corinthians 3 talks about as well. And yet we'll escape through the, the, through the, the, the Bema seat judgments. And we will, we, will, we will gain Christ, but we'll miss out on the rewards. But even more important than any reward and in any crown we might receive or any, any well done, good and faithful servant from the Lord Jesus, we should treasure Christ. We should treasure Christ more than any honor, more than any accomplishment, more than any workplace promotion, more than any degree, more than anything that this life has to offer. And if we are going to get the full force of this this text and what it's saying to us, and, and so we don't miss it, think yourself about the many ways in which you, even as you prepare for the new year, are making those lists, and where is God on that list? Where's the honor of God? Where's the glory of God? Where's the power of God? Where's the understanding that over all those things that you might put on your list, what priority do you place to treasure in Christ above all of those things? It's a question. It's an important question. It's a convicting question. Because if we don't, even those good things, those things like, like Bible reading and even, even exercise and on and on, we can make those into idols. We can attach a meaning and a value and a worth to those things and we miss out on the treasure and the honor and the glory of God. And that's exactly, friends, what Israel did. That's why again and again they caved. Because what God wanted was nothing more and nothing less than their complete and undivided devotion and their complete and utter worship. And that is why when Jesus said what he did, 
to count the cost and to follow him in all of life, people left. Jesus said this to divide the audience because he knew those who would belong to him, those who belonged to him and those who didn't belong to him. He knew that that those who would follow him would follow him in the path of suffering. That's what Jesus said. In fact, you can say it this way. Jesus gave the upper room discourse to prepare his disciples for suffering. If you want to be prepared for suffering, you must treasure Christ above all. You must hold on in vital union with him. You must avail yourselves in the means of God's grace in his word and in prayer and in the local church. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, to guard your heart with all due diligence. After, after giving those great tests, these litmus tests on, on, the, on real love and what it looks like to love the Lord and to love our neighbor, in 1 John, at the very end, the very last verse, interestingly, little children keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because we are so prone, as that famous hymn says, to wander and we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And what this psalm is aiming to do for us is is not just to say, hey, I know the right things. I know that I'm supposed to honor God and I'm supposed to worship him. But how's it going in your life? And the answer that David's giving is it's not going well in the life of Israel. It's not going well. And the question by extension that you must ask yourself today in light of John 4, when Jesus says that to that woman at the well that he is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth, that is his people. That is a people that he has made for his own possession and for his own glory a people that he has purchased with the blood of his own son? How are you doing it treasuring Christ above all things? You know what? We don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. We don't know the challenges that it's going to unfold for us. But this thing we do know, that our God is unchanging that our God is near, that our God cares for us. We know that his promises are yes and amen, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, and we know that his word is true. And that is why we can hold fast to him. We can hold fast to him. And he, if, if, if he doesn't hold us fast, we have no hope. Go back again and again to Romans 8, 31 through 39 and notice how many times over and over and over again Paul says, it's because of the work of Christ. It's because of the work of Christ you are held secure. Friends, this is good news for us. It's not because we are so good and we merit such goodness from God. It's because God is so good that he gives us himself and gave himself. And that is why we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get what we don't deserve. We get the righteousness of God imputed to our account 
because of Christ. At the end of the day, that is the best news in the world. And if, and, if, and if you really know that you know that news, you can sing, it is well with my soul in the midst of any trial, in the midst of any challenge, in the midst of any hard day. And it doesn't diminish, diminish the tears. But it does put them in perspective. And singing it as well with your soul doesn't mean that you never get discouraged and never get depressed. And it, it doesn't mean that you never have a bad day. But you like the psalmist, you remind yourself, as Psalm 42, David does, to hope in God. Hope in God. Maybe today that's what you need more than anything. You need to hope in God in the midst of your own financial difficulties, in your midst of your own anxiety, in the midst of your own discouragement, in the midst of all the challenges of your life, maybe in your family, in your marriage, in your relationship with others. Hope in God. Hope in God because of Christ alone. Hope in the God who not only upholds the, word, the world by the word of his power, but he also governs and he orchestrates all of history. And even now he has placed you in in this time, in this space, and where he has you for the, for the good of others and for the honor of his name. And friend, that is a tremendous encouragement. Because where God has placed you, he wants to use you. He wants to use you as a worshiper of his name. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and no, uh, 10 through 16, Matthew 5, 10 through 16, to be salt and light, to be a light in the darkness. You yourself, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, we are to, we are to be, we are ambassadors of Christ. And we are to call men and women everywhere to repent and to believe and to trust in Christ. How are you doing at honoring Christ in your life? How are you doing at worshiping the Lord and treasuring him above all things? How are you doing at guarding your heart with all due diligence in the midst of, in the midst of all the distractions, in the midst of all the news of our day? How are you doing at it? And if you're anything like me, the answer is you're probably not doing as well as you think you're doing. But there is good news. Because 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the next verse is really important too. Because he is our advocate before the Father. Second, 1 John 2, 1 through 2 tells us. You see, this, this high priest that we have, he offered, he offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all to pay the penalty in our place and for our sin. That is why we have the forgiveness of sins. That means that Christ is sufficient in and of himself. And we know this because of Scripture. Because Christ is revealed from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. And so we can trust Christ because he is not just some fable, some myth, some person out there who never lived and never died. 
he, he changed history. He is sufficient. He alone can save and he alone can satisfy the heart's true desire. And dear Christian, only because he is sufficient can you fear God and obey the commandments of God by the grace of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace and the help of the local church. And so whatever storm you are facing, whatever challenge you are facing, the Lord is sufficient. He is your help. He is your stronghold. He is your deliverer. Turn to him and do as the psalm, psalmist says in Psalm 42, hope in God. Now let's pray. Father, we are reminded today that you are all-powerful. And yet, you are also good. And so no matter what we, no matter what we are facing here today, no matter what we face in our lives at present, you are at work. You are sovereign over all history, and you are working in and through our own history and world history to draw men and women, people who you know and have called by your name, who are loved by you, so, Lord, we thank you for that. But, Lord, we also thank you that you call people to yourself and that there are people, your people, the people of God, whom you have called. And they face trials. They face difficulties of various types. And yet you hand-tailor those situations, those circumstances, those trials for our good and for our glory. And, Lord, where we have failed to see your good hand in the midst of those situations, we repent. We repent. Lord, what we desire is not just the gifts, not just to improve in the areas that we need to improve, but Lord, we desire you above all things. We desire your honor. We desire more of your, your more to, to, to be useful to our master and our king. So we thank you, Lord. For your word we thank you for psalm 29 we thank you that for what it teaches us about how your word yes it governs and sustains the world by the word of your power but also that your word it, it cuts down your enemies we thank you lord that you are a god to be feared and honored and worshiped and obeyed because of christ and we know this because of your word and we believe your word your word is a light unto our path. So help us, Lord, to walk in the light of your word and in the light of the Son of God and the Son of Man revealed in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.